Never take the preacher's word for it. Test what the preacher is saying with Scripture. Amen? Amen. My job is to teach God's word faithfully. Your job is to make sure that you hold me accountable to teach God's word faithfully. And when both of us are doing our jobs, it's a match made in heaven. Tomorrow, uh, we're going to be starting our work week, many of us, and we want to make sure that we're ready for the week ahead. Amen? And so uh, Sundays is the first day of the week. It's a great day to be able to dive into God's word and prepare ourselves for the week ahead. Uh, Make sure you're in John chapter 1 as today we continue our message series, our verse-by-verse study through the book of John. I'm calling this series, Come and See. We want you to come and see for yourself that Jesus Christ is the most amazing person who's ever walked this earth. Amen? Amen. Well, some of you haven't heard the story of how my wife Christine and I met in college on a blind date. So, you know, it was a Friday afternoon. A buddy of mine comes up and says, Dane, I need your help. He says, what do you need? Anything. Well, that was a dangerous response. He says, the girl I really, really like, she will not go on a date with me unless it's a double date. She doesn't want to be stuck on a date with me by herself. And so I need you to go on this date with me. I need to do a double date and go ahead and go on a date with her best friend. Well, I didn't know her best friend. And so I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't do blind dates. And he's just bugging me. He's bugging me. I says, you know what? I, I just can't do this because you know what? She might have one of those weird personalities. We might have nothing in common. She may look like Cruella DeVille for all I know. And so I said, no. And he says, tell you what, tell you what, here's what you do. When you go and knock on her dorm room door, when she comes to the door, if you don't like what you see, just pretend. Well, tell you what, just do this. I said, what's that? He said, you pretend you're having an asthma attack. And if you pretend you're having an asthma attack, it's an easy out. You don't have to go on the date. And I said, well, that's crazy. By the way, I'm not recommending this method. But I thought at the time, it sounds like a pretty good idea. I said, fine, I'll go with you. So I knock on Christine's door, and she comes to the door, and I can't believe what I see. A beautiful blonde, one of those pretty girls I'd ever seen. Gorgeous brown eyes and the cutest smile. I was so excited. I'm like, yes, Lord. And before I could introduce myself, she looks me up and down and goes, Well, no girl's perfect. I am so glad that Christine didn't have an asthma attack when we first met. And aren't you glad that Jesus Christ didn't have an asthma attack the first time he laid eyes on you? In fact, the Word of God tells us the opposite. In John chapter 1, if you go over to verse 3, it says this, Through him, Jesus Christ, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. You know what that means? It means that Jesus Christ, before he ever laid eyes on you, he knew you. He loved you. And he wanted to be in a relationship with you. Isn't that amazing? Before he ever laid eyes on you, he wanted you here. It's a remarkable thought. Before the very foundations of the world were laid, you were in the mind and the heart of the word of God, Jesus Christ. That's pretty amazing to think about. Before God ever said, let there be light. The Word of God, Jesus, saw you. The Word of God, Jesus, knew you. And the Word of God, Jesus, wanted to be in a relationship with you. What an amazing thought. And he loved you with an everlasting love. This morning as we arrive 
at verse 14 of John chapter 1, we're arriving at one of the most glorious verses in the entire Bible. This is an amazing verse. It's one of the best verses in the whole Gospel of John. It's one of the greatest, most profound verses in the entire Bible. John 1.14 says this, The Word became flesh, and He made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This verse is so good. Let's pray one more time before we dive in. Lord Jesus, We want to know you, to love you, and to behold you better than ever. Teach us right now, we pray. Open our minds and hearts. Cut out the distractions. Help us to focus on your holy word right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's take this glorious verse, John 1, 14, and hold it in our hand and turn it like a beautiful gem because this is a gem of a verse. I love this verse. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Let's look at this great verse in a couple other translations. The contemporary English version says it this way. The word became a human being and lived here with us. We saw his true glory, the glory of the only son of the father. From him, the complete gifts of undeserved grace and truth have come down to us. That's pretty good, isn't it? And I think you're really going to like the message, how it paraphrases verse 14. The message says it this way. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Isn't that good? We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one of a kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. From the very first verse of John 1, John refers to Jesus as the word of God. Amen. He's the word of God. Now, here's an important question. Of all the names that John could have chosen for Jesus Christ here in John chapter 1, why did he choose the name the Word of God? So think of all those names of Jesus that he could have used. He could have said, in the beginning was the truth. And the truth was with God and the truth was God. Would that not be true? Yeah, that's true. It's just as true as... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He could have said, in the beginning was the life, and the life was with God, and the life was God. He could have said, in the beginning was the teacher, and the teacher was with God, and the teacher was God. He could have said, in the beginning was the good shepherd, and the good shepherd was with God, and the good shepherd was God. And there are dozens of other names of Jesus he could have used here, and we ask the question, why did he choose the name, the Word of God? It's a good question. Well, two weeks ago, we talked a bit about how the Greek philosophers, beginning with Heraclitus, 500 years before Jesus' birth, had begun talking about this divine mind that created and brought order and meaning to the entire universe. And so for 500 years, this thought had permeated the Greek world, and then the Roman world, and then to a large extent, the Jewish world, that... This divine mind created all this order, and remember this divine mind was called Logos, translated into English as the Word. So for centuries, the Greeks had been talking about the Word that ordered and created and brought meaning to the entire universe. So we talked about this a couple weeks ago. That's one of the reasons that John chooses that title here for Jesus. He's the Word of God. He's the Logos. He created and brought order and meaning to the entire universe. But I think there's a second reason why John chose this title here 
And I think it comes back here to verse 14. Here in verse 14, John makes it clear that the word of God became flesh. Now, if someone were to ask you, why did God put his word down in writing in the Old Testament? Why did God do that? How do you think you'd answer? Why did God speak and write down his word? To share it? Okay. What else? Prove his existence. That's a great answer. Yeah. I would suggest to you that there are at least three reasons, and we've touched on two of those with those answers you just gave. There are at least three reasons why God gave us his spoken and his written word. Real quickly, number one, God wanted to reveal himself and his glory to his followers, right? God is truly knowable. He wanted to reveal himself and his glory to his followers. That's one of the reasons God gave us scripture, to reveal himself, amen? There's a second reason. God didn't want to simply reveal himself. He wanted to also provide a roadmap for finding God and being reconciled to God because our sins separate us from our holy God. Amen? So he didn't want us to just know about him. He wanted us to be able to be reconciled to him, to be in a relationship with him, to know right from wrong. And number three, once reconciled to God, to teach his followers how to glorify him with their lives. And so I would suggest to you these are the three main reasons God gave us the written word of God. And so in Old Testament times, God gives all 39 of those books, Genesis to Malachi, there in the Old Testament, to reveal himself in his glory, to be able to show the people of Israel in particular how to be reconciled to God and how to be made right with him and be in a relationship with him. And once they're in a relationship with him, how to be able to know right from wrong and bring him honor and glory with their lives. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That's the purpose of God's written word. And I want to suggest to you that here in John 1.14, that John is telling us that this threefold purpose of God's spoken and written word was fulfilled in its greatest degree in the person of Jesus Christ. You think about those three reasons for which God gave us his word in the Old Testament. Number one, to reveal himself and his glory. Wouldn't you agree that Jesus Christ reveals God the Father and the glory of God the Father better than any written word ever could? And that second purpose, that it's a roadmap to let us know how to find God and be reconciled to God, wouldn't you agree that Jesus Christ is the greatest roadmap to God that's ever existed in the universe? He is the way. He's not just providing instructions on how to find God the Father. He is the way to God the Father. Jesus is the roadmap. And that third purpose, once we accept Christ as Savior, does he not share with us how we can bring honor and glory to God with our lives? You see, John knew that Jesus Christ is the very embodiment of the purposes for which God gave us his words. And so you could say it this way. The words of God lead us to God in black and white, but the word of God, Jesus Christ, leads us to God in living color. Amen? Isn't that awesome? You ever thought of Jesus that way? He takes the words of God and puts flesh on them. He takes the words of God and brings them to life because he's God with skin on. I really like how Max Lucado says it. Max Lucado writes in his book, God Came Near, the omnipotent in one instant made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God 
as a fetus. Holiness, sleeping in a womb. The creator of life being created. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. To think of Jesus in such a light is, well, it seems almost irreverent. It doesn't seem like something we should do. It's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation, clean the manure from around the manger, wipe the sweat out of his eyes, pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. Jesus is easier to stomach that way, isn't he? To think that the the word of God, the creator of the universe, came to earth and was floating in the amniotic fluids of the womb of a young Jewish girl. We, we just don't even want to think about it at times. It's, we like to keep God distant. Max Lucado is right. But we can't keep Jesus distant because his incarnation is critical to his mission. Amen? And so those of us that wrestle with the fact that God became flesh, we've got to understand that God wants us to wrestle with it, but ultimately we need to embrace it because it's true. Think about it. Jesus, the word of God, became flesh. Jesus is God with meat on. Jesus is God con carne, right? That's who Jesus is. All right? How many of you like chili con carne? How many of you like Jesus con carne even better? Yeah? He's God with meat on. And that may seem sacrilegious or irreverent to some of you, but it's true. That's what John is telling us in verse 14. He's God con carne. The Greeks believed that the spiritual world is, is pure and the physical world is evil. So as hard as it is for you to wrap your mind around this idea that Jesus is God con carne, I believe me, it, it was a lot harder for the Greeks in John's day to wrap their minds around that reality. Because for 400 years, Plato's teaching had infiltrated the Greek world because Plato taught, yes, there is this difference between physical and spiritual. Physical is, 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 is just corrupt and evil and wicked. You can never redeem something that's physical. And then you've got this spiritual soul and spirit living inside of you. And one of these days, that spirit and soul will be extricated from this corrupt body of yours. And that's where you can have true fellowship with the divine mind. If the spirit is separated from the flesh. So William Barclay in his commentary, I think, describes this really well to a Greek. The body was an evil, a prison house in which the soul was shackled, a tomb in which the spirit was confined. So place yourself in the, the Greek shoes for a moment, hearing for the first time that the word of God became flesh, the logos, the creator of the universe, the one who gives order and meaning to the universe. He became flesh and you'd be going, no way. It could never happen. It's impossible. No holy spirit that created and ordered the universe could ever unite himself with sinful flesh. Well, is it impossible? Maybe. But we happen to know, don't we, that Jesus specializes in the impossible. May have been impossible, but he did it anyway. Well, this view was prevalent outside the Christian church that the spirit and the flesh could never be united in serving God together. And in John's day, as many Greeks were becoming Christians, that false teaching began to infiltrate the church. In order to preserve the holiness of God in their minds, false teachers invented all kinds of myths to explain how Christ could appear human without actually being human. 
how he could seem to have flesh and blood without actually having flesh and blood. The most popular of these heresies in the first century was called docetism. Say that with me. Docetism. So what's docetism? Well, the docetists claimed that Jesus was actually, hang with me on this, Jesus was actually a phantom. Sound exciting? So Jesus was a phantom. They taught that Jesus looked like he was a physical being, but he wasn't a physical being. He was a disembodied spirit that only appeared to have a body. So they claimed these docetists, and they began to teach this in the church. It's one of the reasons the letters in the New Testament were written to combat this kind of heresy. They began teaching Christians in the church that Jesus only gave the illusion of feeling hungry. He was never really hungry. He gave the illusion of being thirsty. He never really drank wine or had anything else to drink. He never really felt heartache or pain. He just kind of pretended to feel heartache and pain, just to kind of as a hologram uh, empathize with us. And so it, it presents kind of a problem because at the center of Christianity is this little something we call the crucifixion, right? How'd they explain that away? Well, they explained it. Here's how the Docetists explained the crucifixion of Christ. Judas leaves the Last Supper, right? Jesus, the Spirit, is there pretending to eat the Last Supper. And then when he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane and knows those troops and soldiers are coming to arrest him, Jesus, while the other disciples are blinking evidently, Jesus quickly switches places with his physical stunt double. And stunt double Jesus gets arrested And stunt double Jesus gets slapped upside the head and beaten and nailed to a cross. And stunt double Jesus dies on the cross. Easter Sunday, out of the tomb comes spirit Jesus. And we're all good again, right? And they didn't actually touch his hands and put their hands in his side. That was just a hologram of sorts. And this is what they were teaching. And so at first glance, some that might be new in their Christian faith might say, Well, what's really the big deal? Spirit, Jesus, physical. Why is it so important that Jesus really was in the flesh? Why is it so important? That's a great question. Well, first of all, I want to point out to you the wording John uses here in verse 14. This phrase, he made his dwelling among us. He made his dwelling among us. You know what that literally translates as? Jesus tabernacled among us or you could say it this way jesus pitched his tent among us so when the message paraphrases this part of the verse and says that jesus moved into the neighborhood that's a pretty good paraphrase because that's in essence what jesus does he moves into the neighborhood later in the new testament in john's first letter in first john 1 1 john writes that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked at and our hands have touched this we proclaim concerning the word of life so john makes it clear that jesus was no phantom He personally saw him with his own eyes. He heard him with his own ears. He touched him with his own fingertips. Now, when you see the word glory, as it's used here in verse 14, that word glory is really important. Glory, we think of as the majesty or the power or the beauty of God, right? But some of you have heard me share this in the past. When you read that word glory, I want you to think character. So the glory of God is the character of God. And to glorify God is not just to shine a spotlight on his beauty or his power or his majesty, but to glorify God is to characterize God. 
to follow his example, right? To reflect his image. So what is John saying in John 1.14? He's saying, we have seen the word of God's character, which is the character of the one and only Son of God who came from God the Father. And Jesus' character, it says, is full of two things, grace and truth. We're thankful that Jesus speaks the truth, aren't we? We're thankful for that. But you've probably realized in your lifetime that the truth sometimes hurts, right? The truth hurts. So aren't you glad Jesus isn't just truth? Aren't you glad that he is the embodiment of truth but is also the embodiment of grace? That's a powerful partnership, grace and truth. He is full of truth. No one has ever spoken the truth more truthfully here on earth than Jesus Christ. If you want to hear the truth about God, you go to Jesus. If you want to hear the truth about how to get to heaven, you go to Jesus. If you want to hear the truth about how to live your life in a way that glorifies God, you go to Jesus. But he's also the God of grace. Aren't you glad that Jesus is the God of grace? He displays God's truth and his grace in perfect, perfect harmony. Now, why was it so critical that Jesus came to earth? Let me give you three reasons why he came to earth in the flesh. Number one, Jesus could only reveal what the glory of the Father looks like in our world by actually living in our world. Amen? He could not reveal the glory if he was just a hologram. He had to live in the flesh to show us what the glory of God looks like in the real world, what God looks like, con carne, what God looks like with skin on. Number two, Jesus could only show us how to find God and be reconciled to God by taking our place on the cross. There had to be a physical sacrifice of a perfect lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. A stunt double could never take away the sins of the world. A stunt double could never pay the price for the sin that you and I have committed that separates us from God. It required a perfect physical sacrifice. Just like in the Old Testament, did they ever sacrifice a lamb hologram? Did they ever sacrifice a lamb stunt double? No. Because it had to be physical. Number three, Jesus could only show us how to obey God and bring glory to God by personally showing us in the flesh. Well, let's move on to verse 15 here in John chapter 1. Pick up in your Bibles there, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. John testifies concerning him. This is referring to John the Baptist. John the Baptist testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Take another look at what John the Baptist says about Jesus in verse 15. Look at that again in your Bible. This was he of whom I said... He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. We need to take a look at this verse and a few other English translations because I don't know about you. First reading, this doesn't make any sense to me. Especially when you remember that according to Luke, Luke says John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. So how can John the Baptist be saying that Jesus was before me if he was born after him? And how can he, it's just a confusing verse. Let's look at it in a couple different translations. Here's how the New American Standard translates verse 15. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I. Now that makes sense, right? 
higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So that clears it up a little bit. Jesus had a higher rank than John the Baptist. That's what the NIV means when it says that he comes before him. How about the ERV? How many of you have ever heard of the ERV version? Anyone? What on earth is the ERV? I didn't discover it until a few months back. You can find it on Bible Gateway. By the way, that's one of my favorite online Bible tools. You can go to any verse in the Bible and just do in your Google search engine, like here, John 1.15, and then put Bible Gateway. It'll click on one version, one translation. For me, it always goes default to the NIV. And then you scroll down underneath the verse, and you can click on See All English Translations. And you click on that, and you can see dozens of different English translations. Some of you guys get my daily devotion that I send out Monday through Friday. That's one of the first things I do when I'm preparing a devotion is I look at multiple English translations. It's a great way to study the Word of God, even if you don't know a single word of Greek or Hebrew. And so I did that. The ERV stands for the easy-to-read version. Doesn't that sound like a nice version? Uh, It's not perfect, but many verses in the ERV are quite good. And this is how they translate verse 15. This is the one I was talking about when I said the one who is coming after me is greater than I am because he was living before I was even born. That's pretty clear, isn't it? He was living before I was even born. Now, this verse makes a lot more sense now. In the early chapters of John, John will highlight several reliable witnesses who all testify that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God. Number one, he shares the witness of the Old Testament scriptures and the prophecies that testify about Jesus. Two, God the Father testifies about Jesus. Three, Jesus' own teaching testifies about Jesus. Fourth, Jesus' miracles testify about Jesus. And then finally, number five, there are these witnesses, including John the Baptist, that testify, testify as eyewitnesses that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ and the Son of the living God. So here in John 1.15, John the Baptist testifies that Jesus is greater than him and outranks him. Because he existed long before John the Baptist was a glimmer in his mother's eye, right? And so it may have been that Jesus was born on this earth six months after John the Baptist. But John the Baptist evidently knew the truth. That long before Jesus was ever an embryo in Mary's womb, Jesus existed long before that. John the Baptist, it seems clear, knew that Jesus was in fact eternal as the very Son of God. Look at verse 16. From the fullness of His grace, we have all received one blessing after another. I like how the ESV translates this verse. How many of you like the ESV, English Standard Version? A lot of those in our church use that version. The ESV says it this way. It's a more literal translation of verse 16. For from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. That's more literal there. Grace upon upon grace. The NIV kind of paraphrases it as blessing upon blessing, but that's literally what John says here, grace upon grace. At the end of verse 14, John tells us that when the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, he brought with him the fullness of grace and truth. And here, praise God in verse 16, John the Baptist is making it clear that Jesus didn't just keep the grace to himself. He knew that we needed God's grace desperately. We were lost in our sin. We were hopeless in our sin. We were dead in our sin and didn't have a prayer of making it to heaven someday. We deserved every flame in hell. 
But love came in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus heaped upon us grace upon grace upon grace. How many of you need the grace of Jesus Christ today? I know I sure do. And he heaped it upon us grace upon grace. And remember what grace means. Grace is unmerited favor. You could say it this way. It is undeserved favor, unearned favor, or even this, unfair favor. Unfair favor. Think about that. How often do you suppose Jesus gets frustrated with us complaining about fairness? I think he must get a little frustrated with this because Christians, as Christian Americans, we get so concerned with fairness. That's not fair. That Christian has a higher paying job than me. That Christian has a better house than I have. They have more kids that are better behaved than mine. Well, you watch those kids in their house, you might change your tune. But anyway, it's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ didn't come to earth to bring us fairness? Do you realize how much better grace is than fairness? If Jesus came to bring us fairness, we'd all be going to hell. Right? That's fair. That's just. That's the just punishment for all the times we spit in God's face and turned our backs on him and done whatever the heck we felt like doing instead of submitting to the will of God. What is fair is for you and I to be separated from God in eternity. But what is grace is an opportunity to be forgiven and have the perfect Lamb of God go to the cross in our stead. What a glorious, glorious thought. I am so thankful that Jesus Christ didn't come to bring us fairness. He came to heap upon us grace upon grace. Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So if grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, does that mean that the law of Moses, the Old Testament scriptures, didn't contain grace or truth? No, that's not what he's saying. The law of Moses is true. It's God's word, amen? That was God's word to the people of Israel. And there is grace in the Old Testament. Sometimes you might have to look a little harder for it, but it's, it's there, believe me. The grace of God is in the Old Testament. So what is John saying here in verse 17? He's saying that Jesus is grace and truth in the flesh. You could think of it this way. Jesus Christ is like the Mount Everest summit of grace. Amen? And Jesus Christ is the absolute summit of truth. It's like all of the Old Testament with its grace and its truth was crescendoing to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is God's truth and God's grace in the flesh. The perfect pinnacle and embodiment of God's grace and truth. Finally, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. One of the most important responsibilities of any preacher or teacher of God's word is to faithfully exegete the passage. So if that's a new word to you, exegete, it's used oftentimes in theological circles. Exegete means to expose and to reveal the word of God. So one of the things I have to do in my study each week, long before I ever step up here to present a sermon, is I have to spend time exegeting the word of God. I've got to figure out what God is saying to the original audience it was written to, and there find out from there what he is saying to us today before I step up to preach a sermon or teach a lesson. We have to exegete the passage. Now, with that in mind, guess which word John uses here in verse 18? 
Jesus came to exegete the Father. He came to expose him. He came to explain him. He came to make him known. Jesus Christ came to show us what God looks like in our world with skin on. Jesus came to show us exactly what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, just look at Jesus. If you want to see the glory of God, you need to look no further than Jesus Christ. Well, let me share with you three life lessons that we can pull from today's passage, especially that glorious verse 14. Three life lessons, and I encourage you to jot these down in your notes. Life lesson number one, because the word became flesh, you can now see the glory of God in living color. Amen? Because the word became flesh, you can now see the glory of God in living color. If you want to see the majesty and the beauty of God, you need look no further than Jesus. Most importantly, if you want to see the character of God, carefully study the character of Jesus. I hope that this study in the Gospel of John this year will inspire you to go through Matthew and Mark and Luke as well and study the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Get to know the character of God by getting to know the character of Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals and displays the character of our holy and beautiful God in heaven perfectly. Life lesson number two. Because the word became flesh, you now have a clear roadmap for finding God and being reconciled to God. You now have a clear roadmap. Jesus didn't just come to earth to show us a written roadmap to God. He is the roadmap. Amen? Amen? He is the roadmap. If you want to find God, just find Jesus. If you want to get right with God, just get right with Jesus. If you want to go to heaven someday to live forever with God, you've got to make sure you go through Jesus because there is no other way. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. He is the way, the only way to God. Finally, life lesson number three. Because the word became flesh, you now know exactly how to glorify God with your life. I want to spend a couple moments on this because for some of us, our knee-jerk reaction is to say, you're wrong on that one. I don't know exactly how to glorify God with my life. There's all sorts of major decisions I need to make that I don't have the answer for. I don't know who God wants me to marry. I don't know how many kids he wants me to have. I don't know where he wants me to live, Victorville, Apple Valley, or Timbuktu. I don't know. I don't know what career he wants me to choose. I don't know what to do with my grandkids. I don't know what to do with my grown child that's going off the deep end and I want to bring him back to the right path, but I have no idea how to do that. I don't know how to handle my own grief. I don't know how to handle my own depression. I don't know any of this stuff. And you're saying you know exactly how to bring glory to God. How can you possibly say that? I can say that because you know exactly how to bring glory to God. Amen? Amen? You see, we tend to get up against the trees and we miss the forest. And believe me, when I'm saying that this morning, I'm saying it to myself as well because I've been up against the trees a lot recently. And when it comes down to it, I'm missing the forest. But we've been up against the trees. We've been kind of wading in the weeds and sometimes miss the pathway, don't we? And when it comes down to it, Christianity is not complicated. 
reflecting the glory of God is not complicated. It really boils down to these three things. You want to bring glory to God with your life every day. Trust Jesus. That's number one. Every day. Number two, love Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And every day, obey the commands of Jesus. That's it. Trust, love, and obey Jesus. So no matter where you go, no matter what you're doing, no matter who you're with, trust Him. As it says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. He doesn't promise to tell you what He wants you to do a week from now. Just go to Him every day. God, what do you want me to do today? And He will unfold the path for you for that day. Amen? Trust Him. Number two, love Him. No matter what you're doing, no matter who you're with, no matter uh, what it is, what time of day, and where you find yourself, you have to love Him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And then no matter what you're doing, no matter where you go, no matter who you're with, obey the commands of Jesus Christ. Is it easy? No, it's not easy, but it isn't complicated. You trust Him, you love Him, and you obey Him. And as you do, you will bring glory to God. Jesus is the very Word of God, the Creator, the Sustainer, the One who brings order and meaning to the universe. And if you want order and meaning to your life and the decisions that you make and the relationships that you are in and the place that you live and the jobs that you hold, if you want order and meaning and purpose to all those things, what do you do? You trust Jesus Christ. You love Jesus Christ. And you obey his commands in the midst of wherever you find yourself. And he'll help you sort out the details as you do those three things for the glory of God. He came in the flesh. He is God concarne for you and for me. So we can bring honor and glory to God. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being God with meat on. Because we needed to be able to know to feel, to see, to hear, to experience God in the flesh. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, because you came in the flesh, we can see what God is like better than ever before. We can be reconciled to God like never before. And we can bring glory to God like never before. What a mighty God we serve. Amen.